After my heart attack, cash from active care meant I had choices. When I had cancer, cash from active care meant I didn't need to stress so much about money. What is active care? Active care is a supplemental health insurance policy that offers protection for covered cancer, heart attack, or stroke and a choice of cash benefit options from $10,000 to $60,000. If you're diagnosed with cancer, a heart attack, or stroke, you could end up paying thousands of dollars or more in out-of-pocket medical bills. Active Care gives you protection at an affordable price. So, get Active Care for cash, choice, and control. Active Care is brought to you by Colonial Penn Life Insurance Company and is underwritten by Washington National Insurance Company. Visit colonialpen.com for more information. This is a limited benefit policy. This policy has limitations and exclusions. For costs and complete details of coverage, visit colonialpen.com. Good morning. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here all across the place. Glad to have you with me. I am excited to announce and welcome WBQO in Brunswick, 93.7 FM, joining us uh, this morning and here on out as long as I don't screw up. Uh, now maybe I can get a good rate at, at Sea Island. <laughs> I haven't been to that place in forever. Can't afford it. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of this here program, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. Uh, I, I want to begin, well, I should, the world tells me I should begin uh, discussing the riots, uh, but I don't want to begin discussing the riots. We'll get to the riots. I want to actually do something else first uh, here this morning as we begin the show. I am assume you have seen that the CDC has released revisions uh, relating to the coronavirus uh, and 6% of people who died of coronavirus died solely of COVID-19. It has been seized upon uh, by the people who have been telling you all along that coronavirus is no big deal and, and everyone's overblowing this and and see, we're right, you don't have to wear masks and the like. Um, and I, I'm not surprised that they're doing this, uh, but it, oftentimes and, and frequently and repeatedly, Throughout the course of this, you've seen people trying to build their platform uh, by being supposed truth tellers about the virus. Uh, they're not doctors. They're not epidemiologists. They're not specialists. Uh, they they are, are pundits. They are conservative broadcasters and the like. And they've been telling you all along this is some sort of media hoax. Uh, this is a hoax to get the president. Uh, never mind the data around the world, uh, as if that somehow the rampant spread of cases in places like Brazil and India will all go away the moment Joe Biden is elected. There is undoubtedly a media amplification of bad stories uh, related to Donald Trump being president, and we would not be getting those bad stories if Joe Biden were president. I don't think that's in dispute. Uh, I, I don't think it is. But that doesn't mean the virus isn't bad. And a lot of people are seizing on this this revision of the CDC down to only 6% of people who died of COVID-19 just had COVID-19. To, to show you, see, it's not really that bad. They're really missing the point here because that's never really been in dispute the question has always been how many people died of just COVID-19. Well, now we know 6% of the total deaths were COVID-19. By the way, it's very interesting that to, to embrace the idea that only 6% were COVID-19 alone, uh, you have to embrace the total death toll, 
which is very interesting because uh, for a long time, the people who were telling us this is all a conspiracy, it's all overblown, were saying, well, there really aren't that many people who've died of this virus. And now they're like, see, look, of all that, only 6%. The point has always been this, and, and understand this because it's important. COVID-19 falls hardest on those with pre-existing conditions, and we are a nation of pre-existing conditions. It falls hardest on the elderly, and we are an aging population. COVID-19 goes after those who have asthma, those who have diabetes. In fact, those who have asthma and diabetes are hit the hardest, with number three being um, coronary disease, heart disease. It actually falls harder on those who have diabetes and asthma and uh, heart disease than on those who have lung cancer because this is more or less now we know a blood disease more than it is a pulmonary disease and uh, hypertension and other things contribute to the deaths. This has always been the case. If you've listened to me since this thing started in January and February, I have told you repeatedly that the number one cause of death for people with COVID-19 is a heart attack. It's not suffocation, contrary to what some of the media reports that amplified uh, the cases of people on ventilators and the like. Uh, The number one cause of death for COVID-19 has been heart attack. In fact, there have been too many cases to count of people who were cleared of COVID-19, went home and dropped dead of heart attacks. Why? Because one of the things COVID-19 does is it starves your blood of oxygen, which stretches your heart. And so people get out of the hospital, their heart has been under stress for weeks, and their heart then gives out. That's the number one cause of death for COVID-19. COVID-19 in and of itself is not a cause of death. There are other things that cause your death. And in particular, we find that people who are obese, morbidly so, people who have diabetes, people who have heart conditions, people who have lung conditions, these people are the most vulnerable. The question then is, is the did the person die because of COVID-19? or more accurately phrased, and this is where the CDC report comes in, would this person still be alive but for COVID-19? Now, I know that every single one of you has a story of you heard someone's brother's son's best friend's uncle's mailman died of getting hit by a car and it was labeled COVID-19. It's just like I've heard from inordinate numbers of listeners that they know someone who knows someone who was tested positive for COVID-19 even though they didn't get the test. Every single one of you have told me a story about that. You can't actually bring forward that person. In fact, I know someone I know someone who said, hey, uh, a, a friend of mine's friend had this happen to them, and they actually connected me to their friend on text message who's in law enforcement, and the friend was unable to then get their friend to come forward. I tried finding these people. I tried. And I had multiple people reach out to me and say, I know someone, let me reach out to them. And they never got back to me. Or they did get back to me and then that person refused to follow up. The person it supposedly happened to would not reach out. It's remarkable the number of times this has now happened to me. I actually have a friend in church who texted me and said, hey, I know someone who had this happen to a friend of theirs. And that those people, they, they never followed up. I I have a very good friend of mine who literally copied me on a text message with a sheriff's deputy. It was not the sheriff's deputy, but the sheriff's deputy's friend. And the sheriff's deputy says, I'm going to reach out to him. I'm going to see if I can get them to come forward. Couldn't get them to come forward. The media actually did a very good job of tracking down the source of these. And it came through the way the lines 
were originally created in some of the COVID-19 testing zones uh, where people were put in order trying to comply with HIPAA. They were assigning people to numbers and lines. So you were number five in the line and you got out of the line. Well, then the person behind you suddenly was listed as number five and it was a big paperwork screw up and it messed up. Uh, cases of COVID-19. It was particularly happened in Florida, but it happened in some places throughout the Southeast. We know that that happened. We know there are cases that happened, but not nearly as, as, as many as people claimed. We also do know that there are people who died of causes. They had stage four cancer and got COVID-19 and they were listed as COVID-19 and the family said, oh no, but it was actually, they died of cancer or they died of a heart attack. You are suddenly supposed to presume that after a hundred years of modern medicine in this country and guidelines that every doctor follows, that a doctor can't determine the cause of death, that they're just listing as COVID-19. Now, I realize, yes, hospitals get an incentive to list everyone as COVID-19. And so your conspiracy mind works. Everybody's in it for the money. I mean, I get this all the time. If I say something you don't like, I must be getting money to say something you don't like. Uh, and so a hospital is listing COVID-19 death. Well, the nurse, you know, says that actually we're told to list everyone as COVID-19. I mean, the gossips among us will do us all in. Does it happen? I guarantee you it happens that, that uh, people list COVID-19 to get money. Is it widespread? I guarantee you it's not. The bottom line, though, is that we have known since January and February that most people who get COVID-19 and are healthy are fine. It's the people with underlying conditions. And what the CDC has taken the time to do is go back through the reporting and figure out, but for COVID-19, who would be alive? And that's the way to phrase it. But for COVID-19, you have stage four cancer and get COVID-19. Would you still be alive fighting stage four cancer had you not gotten COVID-19? If the answer is yes, well, then guess what? You're a COVID death because you would still be alive fighting stage four cancer, but for getting COVID-19. That's the way it works. That's the way it's always worked. You drop dead of a heart attack but you have stage four cancer and are given three months to live. Did you die of the heart attack or did you die of the cancer? The odds are you died of the heart attack. It's very much like people with AIDS. People with AIDS have immune system collapse and it's very often not HIV AIDS that causes them to die. It's that they get something else in their immune system and that the flu, pneumonia, something causes them to die. But they would not have died uh, because of the fluid ammonia, but for having HIV. How do you document this? Scientists and doctors have routinely been able to do this for years. And only in conspiracy-minded America of 2020, where you read idiot pundits on Facebook who actually aren't telling you the truth, and you decide, oh my gosh, 100 years of medicine, and they don't know what they're doing anymore. They're blaming everything on COVID-19. No, they, they know how to do this. Here's what's actually happening, and this is the most annoying thing of all is people who are skeptical of COVID-19 are reading the people who tell them everything they want to hear and they believe it is true. You go to your various pundits and, and websites that tell you that it's not bad and that masks are actually some sort of conspiracy and on and on and on. Uh, and you believe all of that. You believe it all. You believe what the fringe people tell you because it's what you wanted to believe in the meantime. 
Uh, you don't have to revise. You don't have to correct. You don't have to change. Uh, you, you know, I, if you've been listening to me since March, since January, February, when this thing happened, have routinely had to tell you, you know what? They were wrong about this. Here's what I told you. The science has changed. Here's now what they know to be true. Very much like masks. In, in February, March, they were saying, listen, you don't need to wear a mask. And I was telling you, the CDC and everyone else was saying, don't wear a mask. Hey, they revised. Why did they revise? And the why is what people ignore. And so people are hanging their hat on this stuff when, in fact, there are logical reasons for everyone to to recognize the revisions. The bigger issue here has always been there are people at risk and they have underlying conditions. My wife, for example, has lung cancer. And so my wife is in a high-risk situation and has had to be more guarded in public. You know, the, the sad thing here is that a lot of the people uh, who are at high risk with pre-existing conditions who have died of, died of COVID-19 outside of New York and New Jersey uh, are people who thought it was no big deal. You know, we, we've got a guy here in town who was on the verge of death, who was in the don't wear a mask, it's no big deal thing until he got it. And I, I've encountered multiple people like this who really thought it was no big deal until they got it. And then they were on the verge of death. And then, you know, gosh, it really was as bad as they said it was. I mean, the, the bottom line here, folks, is that the virus is bad. But if you wash your hands and you wear a mask and you keep your distance from other people, the odds are you're not going to get it. And in fact, we now have a, a whole lot of data out there from Georgia reopening and schools going back to school. And guess what? We're still in a downward trajectory. Why? Because people are typically doing now what they need to do. And that's the governor's point here. Uh, the governor, as he said on this program to me, the government is not going to get rid of this virus. You're going to stop yourself from getting it by engaging in certain responsible behaviors. Uh, flouting conspiracy theories and confirming in your own mind from people who tell you what you want to hear that the virus is a conspiracy, it's, it's no big deal, uh, the CDC got it all wrong, they're doing it to make the president look bad. Uh, that's not really true. And I know for some of you, you've become so deeply tribal and partisan that you really believe it is true. You can't actually believe truth when it's punching you in the face. You, you, you're convinced it's a conspiracy. All I can do is tell you what the truth is. I, I can't make you accept the truth. And I get so frustrated because I've got friends in this camp of it's it's all a government conspiracy or it's really not as bad as, as people say it is. Uh, and, and they want my opinion on stuff. And, and I just, I, I have a hard time, frankly, not telling some of my friends you're actually a blithering idiot. And I've got friends of mine who I, I genuinely feel at this point are blithering idiots. They're, they're going to fringy websites they're, they're finding people who tell them what they've always believed, and then they come back to me, and then they're like, well, you said this, but this guy says this. All I can do is tell you the truth. You don't have to even believe me. I, I'm not here trying willfully to lie to you, but that's the point. Some people actually are trying to willfully lie to you because they've become so tribal and partisan, and they're afraid this is a narrative that hurts the president. They're trying to will it all away. The reality is that if you've listened to me since January or February, I've told you all along, COVID-19 is not going to probably kill you if you don't have pre-existing conditions. And now we know from the CDC what I've been telling you since February is actually right. But the people on, on, on Facebook and Twitter and, and online are twisting this to try to tell you the CDC was wrong the whole time. No, the CDC has been really consistent about underlying conditions. Now we actually have the data that breaks out those underlying conditions and shows they've been right the whole time. If you are a perfectly healthy person, only 6% of the people who get COVID-19 are going to die. 6% too many. 
If you're elderly, the likely the, the odds are you're going to die. But all with underlying conditions. And it's amazing to watch people twist a statement that has been consistent since February. And now the CDC comes out with the data to prove to you what they've been saying since February. And it's being spun as the CDC has lied the whole time. No, they've always said people with underlying conditions and the elderly are hardest hit. The people who are lying are the ones who are trying to twist it into something that's never been, never was, and never will be. But yet many of you believe those people because they're telling you what you want to hear. This hour of the program sponsored by Dynamic Money, uh, my financial advisor who I have got, I got to go sit down and do more budgeting with. And, you know, we came home uh, from out of town this weekend and got home to a refrigerator that is broken. And do you know, it's almost impossible to find refrigerators right now because of government regulations. They're having to roll over a refrigerant. And so there's a backlog and gosh, I I hope they're able to fix our refrigerator. Uh, We got a great maintenance company here in in Macon called SNH that uh, they don't even sell you products. Uh, They just come and fix your stuff. And and thankfully I'm, but man, if we got to do it though, one of the things my wife and I have worked on with dynamic money is building up a reserve fund so we don't have to put stuff on credit cards. And thankfully, I got enough money. I was so stressed out about it. What if I I started pricing them? Man, refrigerators are suddenly expensive. Uh, And I I was pricing them, and thankfully, I got money in the bank. I don't have to put it on a credit card if I go buy a new freezer. But, you know, these are the sorts of stuff I would have never thought of without sitting down with dynamic money and thinking, okay, you need to, to try to build a reserve of three months of salary. And once you've got that done, start building up some other reserve funds to be able to uh, pay off debts and stuff. And I, I'm we're learning this slowly. It is a painful process, frankly, for us uh, with dynamic money, but they're good people. They are, they are not on commission. It is 100% fee. Uh, and so you're paying them to help you. You know you're getting the best advice from them. They're not trying to sell you anything. Uh, they are remarkable at what they do. I, I really I need to encourage you. If you need help with your 401k, you need advice on your 401k, uh, trying to rejigger your debts to pay stuff off, uh, go to dynamicmoney.com dynamicmoney.com. It's what Christy and I did, uh, and now I'm delighted to have them as a sponsor of the program. Uh, they really are worth the money. Uh, they, we have saved so much and gotten out of so many debts, uh, thanks to the advice of folks at Dynamic Money. Dynamicmoney.com. Uh, I really am a customer, really was a customer before the show started. Really, really do recommend them. There's a point I want to make on the CDC data beyond just the conspiracy theorists try, trying to reinterpret as bad. We now know that if you are a perfectly healthy person, the odds are you're going to survive COVID-19, and we've known this all along. Well, now we've got the data. 94% of the people who died of COVID-19 had underlying conditions, and typically those underlying conditions were significant. And I mean, we, we've known for a while now, America as a nation is getting more and more unhealthy. The rates of obesity, diabetes, and the like are going up. But isn't this also a path to reopen the economy? Because we know overwhelmingly the people who get it who are healthy are going to be fine. And the people who get it who have serious underlying conditions are not. So can we reopen the economy in a way that protects and navigates around the people who have pre-existing conditions while letting everyone else go back to work and treat this much as we would treat the flu? Because essentially, uh, if you are a perfectly healthy person and you're under the age of 50, uh, if you get it, it's going to be like getting the flu. Maybe a little worse than the flu, but you're going to survive. Isn't there a path forward for us in the country now 
that we shouldn't be looking at the CDC data and saying this is some sort of thing we've been lied to and this is some sort of conspiracy. What we should be looking to is saying, look, this now provides us a path forward to get the economy reopened. We protect the vulnerable. We protect the medically fragile. We provide ways for employers to keep them safe without them having to come to the office, without discriminating against them, while letting other people go back to the office, letting other people go back to work, letting schools reopen. We now have the data from the CDC that shows us that overwhelmingly people will be fine. Kids, overwhelmingly, if they get the virus, will be fine. Seems like we've got the path now. Now we've just got to implement it. And, you know, some schools are doing this and and others should follow suit. Uh, the University of Arizona is a model in this. Um, there are ways forward for us now that we have this data and this data backs up everything we've heard thus far. So let's reopen the economy now, um, protect the medically fragile. That shouldn't be a controversial statement, but unfortunately, we're in a political age and and these statements, if we might dare risk the economy rebounding before Joe Biden is elected, uh, the media still thinks that's bad. And, and there is something to that. I want to discuss this when we come back and the rioting. It almost seems like we're being extorted in devoting Democrat, which we should all resent. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program, is 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. You actually can call in today. Uh, my, my call screener got back from the beach. <laughs> By the way, uh, a ser- serious moment here, of which he will hate me doing. Uh, so my call screener is also uh, my producer. And uh, Charlie, you, you hear me occasionally badmouth him on radio. Today is his birthday. Uh, he, I think he's 62. Um, <laughs> he's younger than me. Um, we met online uh, years ago now uh, after I got my radio show. And, and uh, it took me forever to uh, find a way to get him hired by my radio company uh, to be able to be my producer. He came down. We hit it off. Uh, he went with me to the 2012 Republican convention in, in uh, Florida and uh, proved his worth and has largely been with me ever since at first part-time and then full-time. And now with this program and the evening show, and I really could not do what I'm doing but for him. Uh, and it is his birthday and happy birthday to him. And uh, I am a, a terrible person when it comes to making other people feel appreciated. I realize I, I'm a self-absorbed. I, I got a wife and kids. I got stuff to do. Uh, and so does he. But I, I couldn't do what I do without him and occasionally need to tell him how much I appreciate him. And this is a perfect opportunity with his birthday, um, although he better not let it go to his head. Uh, he's very bossy and I'm not allowed to fire him. My wife likes him too much and I fire him like weekly and he still hangs around because my wife he knows will make me rehire him. Nonetheless, happy birthday, Charlie. Chris Eliza is at CNN and, and he writes, you know, so Chris Eliza, um, I, I, I gotta just say, if there is, if there are two things on planet earth on which the left and the right can agree, if there are two things on the planet, the left and the right can agree, it's that one, cancer sucks, and two, Chris Saliza is an idiot. Those are about the only two things the left and the right in North America or anywhere on planet Earth agree. Uh, cancer really is bad. None of us should wish it on, on the other side. And also, Chris Saliza is an idiot. He is uh, the editor-at-large at CNN. And uh, what is uh, so hilarious to me is he actually, this is his headline, Protests or riots, it makes a big difference. Now, if you are aware of ratios, 
if you are aware of the ratio, uh, the ratio is a, a Twitter metric. Uh, I really don't care about it, uh, but a lot of people do. Of How many people are replying that you're an idiot versus how many people are liking your tweet? Well, he's got like 1.9, uh, 1,900 likes, and he's got over 12,000 replies. Let me read you part of his analysis uh, here is um, where's the, uh, yeah, his, his big thing. To hear Trump and his allies tell it, The situations unfolding in Portland, Oregon, and Kenosha, Wisconsin, in response to several high-profile shootings by the police of black men is rioting, plain and simple. In the strongest possible terms, the Republican Party condemns the rioting, looting, arson, and violence we have seen in Democrat-run cities, all like Kenosha, Minneapolis, Portland, Chicago, New York, and many other Democratic-run Trump said in his acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention, this violence and danger in the streets of many Democratic-run cities throughout America. At a rally in New Hampshire on Friday, Trump went even further. Uh, protesters, uh, my butt, he said. Well, he didn't say butt. Uh, they're not protesters. They're anarchists. They're agitators. They're rioters. They're looters. Trump's efforts to label what is happening in major cities as riots speaks at least somewhat to his desperation. So you got that, um, the riots versus protests, uh, riots, they're not really riots, they're protests, according to Chris Saliza. Hey Siri, define riot. Which word? R, I, as a noun it means, a violent disturbance of the peace by a crowd. Do you want to hear the next one? Yes. As a noun it means, an impressively large or varied display of something. Want to hear one more? No, I think that covers it. Even Siri says Chris Eliza is wrong. What? Well, by the way, what is an R Y O T? That was her other option. I have no no idea. Uh, apparently, it has something to do with I don't know. Oh oh, it's some sort of film company. I have no idea. But riot, as Chris Eliza says, it's not. Siri says it is a a, a disturbance of the peace. Let's do this again from Merriam-Webster. Define riot, Merriam-Webster. What is a riot? A riot, actually, yes, a riot. A violent disturbance of the peace by a crowd. And yet here comes Chris Saliza, the analyst on CNN, saying it's not really riots, it's protests. Ha <laughs> ha. Right above, right above protests or riots, it makes a big difference. Right above, it says... Portland protests turn deadly. Portland protests turn deadly. So is it a riot or is it a protest? You see, here's the problem. People can't be honest about what's going on right now. And that to me is the most unfortunate part of all of this because the media knows and the Democrats know if they're really honest about it, Uh, they would have to abdicate some blame from Donald Trump. And they're so all about blaming Donald Trump for everything that happens that they just can't bring themselves to be candid and honest about what's going on. It's all got to be Donald Trump's fault. Now, it is not Donald Trump supporters that are out there burning down Portland or Minneapolis or Chicago or Kenosha, Wisconsin. It's not Trump supporters that are in Los Angeles firing on other Trump supporters. It's not Trump supporters in Portland, Oregon, killing Trump supporters, uh, and they can downplay it all they want. I, I want to air you part of, of this, 
and it gives you a sense of what's going on here. This is a montage of Morning Joe on MSNBC. They are very insistent that Joe Biden is denouncing all of this, and they've put together a montage. It's three minutes and 30 seconds. I want to play just part of it. Republicans and some people in the media would have you believe he said it before. Take a look. There's no place for violence, no place for looting or destroying property or burning churches or destroying businesses, many of them built by the very people of color who are the first time in their lives are beginning to realize their dreams and build wealth for their families. Nor is it acceptable for our police sworn to protect and serve all people to escalate tension, resort to excessive violence. <clears throat> we need to distinguish between legitimate peaceful protests and opportunistic violent destruction. I said from the outset of the recent protest that there's no place for violence or destruction of property. Peaceful protesters should be protected and arsonists and anarchists should be prosecuted. And local law enforcement can do that. When President Obama and I were in office, we protected federal property. We were able to do it without the Department of Homeland Security turning it into a private militia. And it could be done today. But that wouldn't help Trump's political interest. He's determined to stoke division and chaos. It's not good for the country. But Donald Trump doesn't care. His campaign is failing, and he's looking for a political lifeline. This isn't about law and order. It's about a political strategy to revive a failing campaign. Every instinct Trump has is to add fuel to the fire. Protesting brutality is a right and absolutely necessary. But burning down communities is not protest. It's needless violence. Violence that endangers lives. Violence that guts businesses and shutters businesses and serve the community. That's wrong. Well, first of all, I denounced it a long time ago. I denounced it weeks ago. And I've made it clear from the beginning that uh, there is no justification whatsoever for violence. I'm going to stop it there because you, you've got a sense of this now. Notice that Joe Biden denounces violence. You know, when Donald Trump said that uh, he denounced the violence on both sides in Charlottesville, and there was violence on both sides, the media excoriated him. They attacked him. The, the media denounced him for doing that. In fact, Chris Cuomo, that's when he began his defense of Antifa, that Antifa were just anti-fascist. There was nothing wrong with that. Uh, th that happened after the Charlottesville situation, and it, it has escalated from there. Joe Biden is denouncing the violence on both sides, and suddenly the media is happy with the with the violence on both sides being denounced. Joe Biden is not denouncing any group though. And I want you to pay attention to that. Joe Biden is not actually saying anything about who's doing it. It's just a, a general denouncement of the violence on both sides. When Donald Trump does this, the media demands that he be very specific. Who, Mr. President, who's doing this? We need you to say this. But with, with Joe Biden, here you've got this montage put together by Morning Joe in defense of Joe Biden saying he's denouncing the violence. But who's he denouncing? He's not denouncing Antifa. He's not denouncing the rioters. 
He's not denouncing the anarchists. He's not denouncing Black Lives Matters. He's not even denouncing the blue check marks on social media saying uh, burning down a building isn't violence. He's not doing any of that. He's not actually denouncing any group doing anything. And when you hear the media talk about it, the media blames Donald Trump for it. I this is if, if Philip puts this on, on on Instagram and he probably ought to this this what I'm about to say we're going to have to figure out a way to turn off the comments because some people are going to be really mad at me saying this. This feels like an extortion attempt by the left. You must replace Donald Trump with Joe Biden or your cities will continue to burn. It feels like a shakedown. If you don't get rid of Donald Trump, we're going to keep this up. In Los Angeles, Trump supporters did a a car parade. They made a lot of noise. They got shot at. In Portland, Oregon, a a self-described member of Antifa murdered a Trump supporter over the weekend solely for being a Trump supporter. In Kenosha, Wisconsin, the riots continue. In Portland, Oregon, the riots continue. Uh, There's been violence still in Minneapolis and in Chicago. And we get generic statements of condemning violence on both sides by Joe Biden that the media is sufficient for him, but not for Donald Trump when there's violence. And we don't get any any specific provision of blame except for Donald Trump. Last I checked, it is not Donald Trump and his supporters burning down Kenosha, Wisconsin. Last I checked, it was not Donald Trump and his supporters marching through Chicago, smashing windows and looting the place. Last I checked, it was not Donald Trump and his supporters burning down Portland, Oregon. In fact, three weeks weeks ago, the Washington Post was running exposés on Antifa fashion in Portland, Oregon. I kid you not. They were doing profiles of the protesters and their fashion choices, and they were making the case that it was all Donald Trump's fault that the protesters were there. And if Donald Trump and the federal authorities would go away, the protesters would go away. Three weeks later, Portland, Oregon is still burning down. They had a murder of a Trump supporter last night, but the media told us three weeks ago these were peaceful protests, and it was all Donald Trump's fault with federal protester, federal authorities in Portland antagonizing the protesters. Well, they're gone, and the protests not only remain, but they continue to be violent. They are riots. And now we have the, the editor of CNN, what, what is his actual title, Chris Eliza, telling us that the editor at large, that protests are riots, it makes a big difference. These aren't riots, but Donald Trump benefits by calling them riots. Meanwhile, the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary says they're riots. The media tells us repeatedly Donald Trump has a problem with the truth, and neither the media nor the Democrats can be truthful about what's happening in these cities. It is not Donald Trump egging this stuff on. The fact that he comments on it gives the media ammunition. They, oh, he's egging it on. It's left-wing anarchists, and frankly, many of them to the left of Joe Biden, who don't like Joe Biden, who are doing this. These are Bernie Sanders voters. But it's of the left. It's not of the right. It's not Donald Trump. It's not Trump supporters. It's left-wing agitators who want Donald Trump gone. And Joe Biden can't stand up and denounce these people. He can't denounce Antifa. He can't denounce the anarchists. He can't even denounce the blue check marks on Twitter saying it's okay to burn down buildings because it's not really violence. These people have insurance. Keep it up. He can't do any of that. He can't go after Black Lives Matters, which uh, their leadership seems to be in, in encouraging some of this.
He can't go after any of those people. And yet the, the media wants you to know that Joe Biden, he's denouncing the violence in very general terms. If Donald Trump so generically denounced violence as he did in Charlottesville, the media would come after him. But they're giving Joe Biden a pass. It is a double standard. And it is something that they know is going to be a problem for Joe Biden. They now want Joe Biden to have a sister soldier moment. I've been telling you for weeks, Joe Biden needed to have a sister soldier moment. The problem is he's got to come up with someone to be sister soldier against. He's, he's got to come up with someone as the bad guy. And right now, all he can do is just generically denounce the violence. Who is burning down the cities? Who is shooting Trump supporters? Who is throwing Molotov cocktails? Who is attacking the police? It's not violence doing that. It is someone committing violence. Violence is not the actor. It's it's crazy to me that the Democrats in America right now want you to believe that it is people who are responsible for gun violence, but it is Molotov cocktails who are responsible for burning down buildings, not the people who threw them. It is a hypocritical double standard that the media is covering for covering Joe Biden with. And that's going to cost him the election if he can't figure out a way to navigate this. And him losing the election by refusing to actually denounce the base of Democratic voters and left-wing radicals doing this, well, that would be some level of justice. I, I do have to laugh, by the way, uh, Chris Eliza on uh, on his CNN page. He, 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 riots or protests, he's trying to make the claim that these aren't protests or these aren't riots, these are protests. And the picture that the, the CNN uses, they're almost trolling their own editor, is of a burning building with, with uh, police and riot gear in front of it. I mean, <laughs> the, the, their own picture choice gives away the game. It, it just, it, it, it's, it's sad uh, and it's pathetic. You know what else is sad and pathetic? Georgia College and State University. Uh, they are, you've got students over there protesting the reopening of school. There's a picture at uh, the Macon Telegraph, uh, someone holding up a tombstone, laying down on a yoga mat, no less. Of course they're laying on a yoga mat. And it, it says, I can't teach if I'm dead. And there's one that says, no dead bobcats and death is too many. Um, I just, this is, this is ridiculous. Uh, this is, let's see, who's the author here? Uh, Caleb Slinkard at the Telegraph, Georgia college and state university in Milledgeville has reported 535 confirmed COVID-19 cases since June 18th and 253 cases this week with fewer than 8,000 students that gives Georgia college one of the worst college case rates in the country. The Georgia College chapter of United Campus Workers of Georgia organized a die-in Friday morning at the campus to protest what some students, employees, and parents said was poor planning by university leadership. Georgia College didn't test students, faculty, or staff before they returned to campus earlier this summer. There have been complaints about a lack of social distancing and limited virtual education options. Oh, my goodness gracious. Um, I, I I am, I wow. Seriously, y'all? Um, you don't have to go to school there. What is that? United Campus Workers of Georgia? Good grief. Uh, you don't have to go to school there. 
You don't have to do it. Now, should they have done better? Yeah, I mean, you know, Mercer University here in Macon actually did a very good job. I'll tell you the gold standard now is the University of Arizona. This is kind of incredible. Uh, the University of Arizona has been able to get back to school. And do you know what they did? This is kind of gross. Uh, but there is ample research that uh, the first place COVID-19 shows up in your body is in your poop. Yes. And so they have put monitor stations in the sewage uh, release from each of the dormitories. Kind of genius. And so they monitor the sewage release from each of the dormitories. And if they find, if COVID-19 is detected being released from a dormitory, they give everybody in the dorm a test and see who has the virus. And then they take those people out of the dorm, clean the dorm, and they they, they quarantine the people who've been near them in, in the, the dorm. And and they they keep testing and they have remarkably not seen a major viral spread at the University of Arizona. Universities in Georgia should pay attention to this. It's not a bad idea. I mean, and it works. The, the science is actually fairly proven at this point uh, that the very first place COVID you're going to be able to detect COVID nineteen is in someone's poop, and so you're testing the sewage coming out of dorms, and you can rapidly before people even get symptoms. It's showing up, and they can they can shut it down, which is remarkable. Uh, Mercer has done really copious testing. In fact, I was looking on the, the Department of Public Health website. If you text the word uh, data to 33777, you can see this for yourself. The, the second link you'll get is to the Georgia Department of Public Health. And uh, if you if you and for those of you listening down in Brunswick and, and you're not familiar with the show, I like for people to be able to see links themselves. And so I, I, I text people the information. So if you text the word data to three, three, seven, 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 I'll send you back a link. And and Bibb County is one of the hotspots. That's where I am in Macon right now. And if you click it, there's a remarkable spike in uh, confirmed cases, 731 cases on August 24th. Those appear to be tests coming back uh, from the local colleges, uh, and they're actually spread out over July and August. Um, but wow, remarkable data. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, you want to be a part of the program, you could actually call today, 877-97-ERIC, 877-973-7425. The, the GBI's Douglas Regional Alf Office arrested the mayor of Nashville. Now, you're thinking, Nashville, why did why the Georgia Bureau of Investigation arrest the mayor? Well, it's Nashville, Georgia. <laughs> Taylor Scarborough has been arrested for theft by conversion and theft of services. Turned himself into the Berrien County Jail. That's down near Adel. Uh, on Thursday, GBI's Douglas Regional Office received a request from the Berrien County Sheriff's Office to conduct an investigation regarding the allegation of property damage by a public official the investigation revealed the Berrien County Sheriff's Office was dispatched to Nashville Mayor Taylor Scarborough. James Hobbs alleged the mayor had taken and used Hobbs' excavator without permission and caused significant damage to machinery. Life in small-town America here in Georgia. Y'all, speaking of small-town America, I got to tell you a story. This is so off the beaten path from what I was going to talk about right now, but... You know what? I'd rather talk about it than talk about the virus and politics. <laughs> yeah, y'all better prepare yourselves. Some of you have heard the story. Have I got a story for you? When I was a lawyer, you know, I, I so I really liked politics a lot. Uh, started the College Republicans at at Mercer. 
when I was there as a student and then uh, was the chair, the last chairman of the Georgia Federation of College Republicans in the state and the first chairman of the Georgia Association of College Republicans. And um, it, it just the, the whole thing was was fun to me. I enjoyed politics when I was a kid. I grew up in Dubai and the United Arab Emirates and it, politics was a way to connect to the U.S. Um, and I just I always liked politics. Well, when I became a lawyer, I started helping uh, races. And, and one of the races I ran was for a guy running for a Bibb County Commission chairman. He was in a Democratic primary, uh, and his name was Bob Fountain, and he was a wonderful human being. Passed away a few years ago. Uh, just, just, I mean, I, I love the man. He was just wonderful. One of the nicest people you'd ever meet. Well, he was running for chairman of Bibb County, and he was running against a guy uh, who everyone assumed he would win. He actually did wind up winning the primary. Um uh, and it, it just, it's, it's, this is worlds collide today. So, uh, let me tell you a story about this race. <laughs> I'm blushing, even telling the story. Uh, I got a phone call one day from a woman who she, she wouldn't identify herself. And she said there was something about, uh, my, my client's opponent, Lance, uh, that, uh, I needed to see. And that she had it, and she wanted to give it to me. And would I please meet her? And she asked me to meet her down the street from now. If you're familiar with downtown Macon, there's the Fickling Building. If you drive through Macon, you'll see in the red letters at the top, Fickling Building. And, and if you're facing from the law school, from Coleman Hill in Macon, and you're looking at the building, if you look to the right side and down three windows, that was my office. And she wanted me to meet her down the street from my office on Mulberry Street in downtown Macon. Uh, it was at the time the Wachovia building uh, and then it, Wells Fargo. And now it's the Bibb County Board of Education. And there's some benches down there, a nice little park. And she wanted me to meet her down there. So I went down there and I got down there. I gave her my cell phone number and I got down there and there was nobody there. And I waited around and she called my cell phone and she said she, she was nervous. She wanted to make sure that I could trust her. Uh, and if I would please go to, uh, the medical center of central Georgia, there was a McDonald's there and she wanted to meet me over there. So I drove over, she wanted to make sure nobody would see us. So I drove over to the McDonald's. There was nobody there. And she calls again and, and she says, go back to my, she's just, she's nervous. She doesn't want to meet. So I go back to my office and she calls again and she's nervous and please, nobody can know it's her. Do, do, do I absolutely, I'm like, ma'am, I, I don't even know what you have. I, I don't care. I'm a lawyer. I'm not going to tell anybody you gave me whatever it is you have. I, I'm not going to tell anybody. All right. So she tells me she'll meet me. There's a little park. What is it? The Washington Street Park. It's if you know where the the post office is in downtown Macon. Uh, there's a there is a a road there uh, by the post office, and uh, it goes down a hill into a beautiful little park. Uh, right there by the uh, yeah, it's Washington Park by the Washington Memorial Library. And so you go down, there's Magnolia Street. It runs down this hill. There's this little park. And in the park, there's this little bricked in, it's, it's a stream. And you can actually see the water 
rolling and it, there are some park benches along that there's there's a line of trees and there's some benches and at the time I, I want to say it was like five benches and I get down there and my phone rings and she asks if that was me because I she had asked me to describe my car earlier and I said yes and, and she says I have left you the package in a Kroger bag under the fifth bench like okay so i go into the little park and again there's this little it's it's kind of bricked in um it, there's like a spring or something i guess i don't think it's just rainwater because there's always water there so it's got to be a spring that flows through there and there are these benches and i go down and under the fifth bench there is a kroger bag and in the kroger bag is a paper bag and in the paper bag is a videotape now for kids these days, there used to be this thing called a VHS tape on which you could record things and play it back with video. And this was before the era of DVDs and iTunes. So I take this videotape back to my office. I have no idea what's going to be on this videotape. I literally have no idea. By now, though, based on me having conversations with the candidate I was working for and a couple of friends of mine who knew the opponent, we presume that it is the opponent's wife or ex-wife. So she's got something on videotape. So we go back to my office and... I go in, we've got this little, we're on the, the 14th floor of the Fickling building. At the time, the law firm has the whole floor. And there's this little corner office with a TV and a video player in it. And we go in. Well, I go in. I grab a, a, two buddies of mine who work at the law firm because I need witnesses. So we go in. We close the doors. We close the blinds. And I pop in this tape. Well, at first... It is a video of an empty office. And one of the guys I'm with, I have never, never been to the Chamber of Commerce in, in Macon, Georgia. And uh, one of the guys I was with is, it would, was active with the Chamber. And, and the first words out of his mouth, he sees the tape and literally it comes on and, and it is an empty room. And he says, well, that looks like the Chamber of Commerce, the carpet and the wall and everything. And then entering the frame is the opponent. The opponent ain't got no clothes on. point the guy in my office says that's his office <laughs> the chamber of commerce that's his office of the chamber yeah and then the woman enters the frame and she doesn't have any clothes on either and well they proceed to film themselves yes yes in the chamber of commerce now we understand why the wife wanted to get the tape out there because it's not her in the video. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, so we, we watched the tape. Y'all, it was bad. I, I can't describe it for you. I don't want to describe it for you. We'd like to keep this family friendly. It was bad. And so then we got to decide, what are we going to do with, with this videotape? Well, obviously, you want to leak it to the press, except there's a problem. I mentioned my client, Bob Fountain, 
Bob was an extremely good guy. And he refused to let us use the tape. So he was not going to ruin that kid's reputation. And Bob was one short. I mean, the guy was was grown, uh, had, had a wife and all. But uh, Bob was, in, in his mind, this guy was young. And he was not going to ruin this guy's reputation uh, by getting that tape out there. Had wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. Bob wound up win, uh, losing the Democratic primary to Lance. Uh, and, and uh, the Republican opponent, Charlie Bishop hired me. And of course, Charlie, he was perfectly fine. <laughs> he was perfectly fine getting the tape out there. Y'all, it was, it was, it was bad. Um, I, 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 I don't even want to describe for you in the ways it was bad, but it was bad. And, um, yeah, it was bad. And so Charlie Bishop wound up winning the, the race, uh, last Republican elected, uh, County commission chairman in Bibb County. Uh, he he was a fascinating person in his own right. Now, I, the only reason I tell you the story is I got a text message <laughs> this weekend from a group of people, and they said, "Hey, did you know that this guy, the guy in the videotape, he's running for mayor of Seattle?" <laughs> sure enough, um, the, the 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 mayor of Seattle is Ginny Durkin. Uh, she is was a U.S. attorney. She is the first woman elected mayor of of Seattle uh, since the 1920s. Uh, she is also um, uh, a lesbian. Uh, she was the first, I think, uh, lesbian U.S. attorney. Barack Obama appointed her, uh, and um, she is embattled right now in Seattle. Given the protests there, local unions have called for her to. Um, called for her to step down. She's not going to. She's running for a re-election, and it appears that the star of my videotape way back in, when would that have been, 2004, I guess, is now running against her for mayor. Worlds collide today. In, in my, I'm just brain blown. Um, no, I, 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 I don't have a copy of the tape. If you're wondering, uh, one, I don't have a VHS player anyway, but two, no, no, I wasn't keeping that trash. Um, but yes, that was my story in, in, in campaign intrigue, driving around the city one day. I don't even remember how I build that. You know, as a lawyer, you're supposed to bill your hours. I can't even remember how I build that. Uh, it was, it was just, it was, I was on a flat fee anyway, so it really didn't matter, but I had to document my hours of driving around the city of Macon in search of a woman who I, to this day, I've never actually met the woman. Uh, but I found the videotape under the park bench where she finally told me it was and got to witness that. And that is something I hope to never see again and and would never have even thought of it again, except for the headlines of of this guy is now running from here in a different part of the country. Y'all politics is weird. Politics is very weird. And, and you know, the thing that I learned when I was on city council in Macon is that uh, local politics is the nastiest politics. You know, national politics is all very abstract. It's one reason you can tell Joe Biden has been a uh, uh, national politician for as long because he's denouncing the violence uh, that's going on in the country in very abstract terms, not the protesters, not the anarchists. Not it's just all very abstract. Uh, the local level, the, the, that stuff is real. At the local level, it's all a very real thing. And my goodness gracious, that videotape was very real. And now that guy is resuming his political life all the way on the opposite side of the country. I, it just, wow, I got some stories to tell, and, and that's probably one of the best ones in politics. Well, here's your wild one for the day. 
This is uh, from Michael Brown at the Christian Post. Um, no, I don't. Stop this stupid pop-up ad. Let's imagine you're playing make-believe with your three-year-old daughter, Sarah. You ask her, what are you today? She replies, I'm a boy and a girl and a mermaid and a king and a queen all rolled up into one. And you smile and reply, you've got quite an imagination, Sarah, but there's nothing to smile about when it's an adult who says these things, even less to smile about when the adult is the licensed minister. Last week, the individual in question, Jay Mai, came to national attention when she participated in an LGBTQ panel discussion during the DNC calling for the abolition of the police, prisons, and ICE. That, by the way, that happened at the Democratic National Convention, um, th- this person calling for the abolition of police, prisons, and ICE at the DNC. Mai is on staff with the LGBTQ Center at Wake Forest University and according to the cached version of the website, holds a bachelor's in sociology and women gender sexuality studies from Wake Forest University and is working towards a master's in divinity at Wake Forest University School of Divinity. Mai identifies as... Y'all may need to sit down for this one. Mai identifies as a black Vietnamese transgender non-binary gender transcendent mermaid queen king currently living out there ever-evolving truths in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Let me review one more time. J. Mai identifies as a, this is, this is self-described, self-described black Vietnamese transgender, non-binary, gender transcendent mermaid queen king, queen king, currently living out their ever-evolving truths in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Mai is also a recently licensed minister in the Progressive National Baptist Church. As for my study interests, they lie at the intersection of blackness, queerness, decolonization, and trauma, with the end goal being liberation for all people. I, I, I don't even really know where to say, um, I'm this, um, I'm gosh. So, you know, I'm here, here's, there's a lesson. (laughs) First of all, yes, we should acknowledge this is nuts. Uh, And yet, yet this person was at the DNC calling for the defunding of all police and the abolition of ice and getting rid of all prisons. Uh, but but this is someone who identifies herself as uh, lying at the as as a queen king, not transgender, non-binary, gender transcendent mermaid, mermaid. Man, when Disney decides to do the live-action version of the Little Mermaid, I think I know who to choose. <laughs> stuff real and yet it is um okay all right here's the thing this is lesson life lesson i have learned 
when someone talks about finding their truth, the odds are they're nuts. You see, there is truth. There actually is truth. If you're a person of faith, particularly if you're a Christian, you've got to believe in the truth because your scripture says uh, that your God is truth. Uh, When someone wants to go find their truth, what they are doing is trying to put themselves up as their own uh, queen, king, transcendent, mermaid, god thing, um, I guess. There is no such thing as your truth. Now, I realize it is in the Oprah Winfrey-fied era of the United States of the 21st century, people like to talk about their truth. I'm going in search of my truth. My truth is that I'm a unicorn orangutan. I, I don't know what that is, but it's fueled by clown farts. Uh, and and none of it makes any sense. It's just bat poop crazy stuff. But it's my truth. And and see what what you what you say by saying it's my truth. How can you say I'm wrong if this is my truth? It may not be your truth, so it may be wrong for you. But you can't say it's wrong for me. This is this is the 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 post truth, uh, postmodern word games that the demented play. Is, is your truth and my truth can be completely different things. And you know, the, the alphabet gang, the LGBTQIATP alphabet gang people, they engage in this a lot. And, and yet you're supposed to adhere to their truth. And if you don't adhere to their truth, you're a hateful bigot. They don't have to adhere to your truth though, but you've got to adhere to their truth. And, and so we're supposed to accept that this person is a mermaid, queen king, living out there ever. And the other thing is you got to pollute the English language. You're either a he or a she, you're not a they, if you're a single person. And yet they would have you believe so. And and an ordained minister, uh, let's not treat this. I don't even know what the progressive national Baptist church is, but it can't be a serious organization with, with a, with a, uh, with a queen King mermaid as a minister. There's y'all, we have reached the territory of craziness in this country. And it is on parade in major urban areas and at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, We're being held hostage by crazy in this country at this point. And it is just nuts to behold this unspectacle unfold. (laughs) My buddy Todd just texted me about, welcome back, first of all. Uh, It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you God, King, Queen, your truth seekers wish to call it, 877 Nine seven Eric eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. I guess it would be an appropriate time to remind you all that it is E R I C K. Uh, so my buddy, if you if you weren't here before the break, uh, the the DNC featured a a woman named Jay Mai who describes herself as a black Vietnamese transgender non-binary gender transcendent mermaid queen king. Currently living out their ever-evolving truths in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I commented before break that if if Disney needs someone for, for the Little Mermaid live action, <laughs> the, the, you know, I found your person, but my buddy Todd texts it sounds like maybe it's the casting call for Ursula. <laughs> Y'all, oh my goodness gracious. Uh, and, and I haven't even gotten to all the Georgia news. Um, 
Let me get to the Georgia news. And and one thing I want to tell you, uh, this is something I like to do while, while uh, until we, we, we transcend the state of Georgia and do more national work, which, I mean, I've been very honest with everybody that uh, Georgia is a, a, a swing state this year and is going to be targeted by both sides for the election. There is no statewide radio program that really comes from a Georgia perspective, even taking on these national stories. And and so I put this one together. We give it away for free to stations. We're we're still trying to get on in some places, Douglas and Statesboro, um, Albany, Carrollton, and and the like. We're still spreading Savannah as well uh, and, and others. And, slowly but surely spreading this show and and we increasingly we do have a georgia centric focus after the election is over i i do want to start stretching my legs and and move beyond the state of georgia Uh, but do it in a a deliberate way without alienating people i I live in macon uh for those of you who are new to the program i I live in in middle georgia uh and one of the things i want to do and that i have done on my other radio show in atlanta that i want to do here is very simple I want to invite on uh, the, the the credible candidates, and, and there's a definition for credibility. I want to invite on the credible candidates running in this jungle election for the U.S. Senate, Democrat and Republican alike. Non-combative interviews, just who are you? What do you stand for? Why are you running? What is your big issue? I don't want, want you to disparage the other side. I would love to get on Matt Lieberman and Ed Tarver and Raphael Warnock, and Kelly Leffler, and Doug Collins for a very straightforward 20, 15, 20 minutes. Who are you? Why are you running? Why should people give you the benefit of the doubt? Uh, what stands out in your mind to make you better than all the other people running? And just let them make their case. And and I, I actually enjoy these. I did this actually in 2018 in the primary with every single candidate running for governor, including Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans, uh, uh, just let them come on the radio show and and make their case of, of who are they and why are they running? It was it was an hour with each of these candidates, and it was completely non-combative. It was probative, not combative. That's the way I like to describe them. I don't like to get people on this program because I'm not a hostile person, and and I don't want to pretend. I don't want to play something on radio that I'm not in person, and I'm not. I mean, I can have a have a dispute with someone and and push them, and they push back on me and let people think for themselves. But I actually think it would be worthwhile letting these people come on. And you know, the the reality is in this day and age, though, if I were to invite a Democrat on this program and let them make their case for fifty minutes, I would get just obscene hate mail from from conservatives for daring to let them come on. But I think you should be able to get to know the people, uh, even if you're not going to even if you're not going to attack them or even if you're not going to vote for them, you're going to attack them. You're not going to vote for them. But why not hear from Matt Lieberman and Ed Tarford and Raphael Warnick? Now, I say credible candidates because I know there are two thousand candidates running for the U.S. Senate here in Georgia. And let me rewind and explain this for those of you who don't know. So Johnny Isaacson, the United States Senator, left his seat early and under the laws of Georgia and the nation, uh, the governor of the state of Georgia gets to pick a replacement. Although this goes back to the pre-election days of the Senate where the governor appointed senators based on the the consent of the uh, General Assembly. And we still have this situation now in Georgia where when a when a Senate seat becomes open, U.S. Senate seat, 
the governor appoints someone to that seat. And that person is allowed to serve the duration or is allowed to serve until the next general election. And then will serve if confirmed for the rest of that person's term. Brian Kemp wanted to find a non-traditional candidate for that seat. Uh, He was lobbied mightily uh, to put in Doug Collins and decided he wanted a woman and wanted a non-traditional candidate and went with Kelly Loeffler. And a lot of people are upset about that. Uh, they think it was almost a, a done deal because, you know, he he they dragged out the process of letting people submit resumes and then Leffler's dropped and they closed the nominations process and he picked her. Uh, and a lot of people complained about the process. And I understand that he chose Kelly Leffler. I have told everyone I've been very upfront, even with Doug Collins, who I, I, I know and, and dearly respect and love the guy. Uh, but I told him I, I'm going to give the governor the benefit of the doubt here and let Leffler um, prove herself. And then uh, she will have two, if she's confirmed in November, she'll have two years. And then that's when Johnny Isaacson's term would expire and she will have to be up for election again in 2022. And that is to a degree why the governor wanted a a female Republican thinking in 2022, uh, being able to run statewide with a female Republican in the Senate seat would actually do some good. There was a strategic calculation there you could disagree with. That was the logic. I trust the governor. I respect him. That's why I said I would vote for Kelly Leffler. Uh, as much as I love Doug Collins. And if Leffler in two years has proven herself to be squishy, well, then let's replace her with Doug Collins, but give her the chance. Uh, In any event, uh, it is under the laws of the state of Georgia called a jungle election. Now, jungle elections get their name by everybody being piled on the ballot together, Democrat and Republican. And the state house, the speaker of the house is friends with Doug Collins and tried to get this changed, thinking it could benefit Collins by having a primary. The governor said he would veto it because it would be changing the rules of the election in the middle of the election. And the governor philosophically, I think, is right. You don't change the election in the middle of the election. So jungle primaries are something I'm familiar with from Louisiana, where I grew up, where everybody, Democrat and Republican, pile on the ballot together. And then if you get over 50 percent, you're automatically the winner. If you don't, you go into a runoff. In Louisiana, it was very weird in that you used to do this um, in, in you'd have like the election in June and then August. And so you would have your congressional nominee. You don't know who was going to Congress in August, uh, never mind the November election. And it was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court because the the Constitution mandates the election has to be the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And so they moved everything. So the jungle primary is now November the um, election day in November, and then there could be a runoff after that. Well, that's what's going to happen here in Georgia is that you will have the election day will be the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. That is, it will coincide with the election for David Perdue. It will coincide with the election for the president. If no one gets to 50%, there will be a runoff in January. The future of the United States Senate could hinge on Georgia in January of 2021, much like, if you will recall, years ago, the uh, Max Cleland Saxby Chambliss runoff. Uh, it was it, it, an interesting, interesting dynamic there with, with Chambliss and Cleland back in the day. And now we could see this again. Um, will there be? Yes, I suspect there will be a runoff in January. The question is, will it be two Republicans or will it be a Republican and a Democrat? The odds are that none of the Democratic candidates, and there are three major Democratic candidates. Uh, There is Ed Tarver, 
There is um, Raphael Warnock, who's the uh, guy the Democrats would like everyone to consolidate behind. And then there's Matt Lieberman, the guy the Democrats hate because he got in early in his race a ton of money. He's Joe Lieberman's son. Joe Lieberman, former vice presidential candidate and senator from Connecticut. Uh, and those three, when I use the word credible, the reason I say credible is because there are a bunch of people running for this race. The problem is most of them are polling at one or two percent and can't raise a ton of money. And I don't want to I don't want to give attention to and I don't mean to be rude or condescending. I really don't. I just have a limited amount of hours in the day and you have so many candidates. I can't do it all. And so I would like to see people who are 10 percent of the polls or have raised like five million dollars. And if you if you can get to those numbers, I'm, I'm happy to interview you. And right now that's Ed Tarver and Matt Lieberman and Raphael Warnock and Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler, those five out of the thousands of other people running. And I think it would be worthwhile sitting down and getting you exposed to these candidates, Democrat and Republican alike, on who they actually are. So I I have a confession to make uh, regarding this. I'm a partisan. I was an elected Republican. I, I am a conservative. I am a Christian. I don't vote for people who support abortion rights. I, I will not vote for people who support abortion rights. I, I think it is killing children, and I'm philosophically opposed to that. But I also believe that we have reached an age in this country where if you support a different party or have a different political philosophy or you support abortion rights, um, that you are oftentimes by people on my side seen as evil. And on the other side, those people see conservatives as evil. And it is because in part we have become so tribal as a society, we have lost the ability to have civic friendship. And what I mean by civic friendship is where you and I may not be per se friends with someone, but we recognize the inherent worth of that person and that while they disagree with us philosophically and politically, uh, we recognize it is a it is a disagreement among people of a common country, and we just disagree. And increasingly, both sides view the other side as out to destroy the country in some way, as out to fundamentally transform the country. And it doesn't help that some politicians use that rhetoric. And it's one reason why I think philosophically, though I am a conservative, I am a Christian, I am a Republican, I am pro-life, I think I have an obligation to understand the other side and see the other side as a person with whom I disagree and not as the enemy. And it is increasingly hard for most people to view someone on the other side as anything other than the enemy. And so I get hate mail from people when I refuse to, in personal terms, denounce the other side now. And you know, I used to be that guy who would say terrible things about the people on the other side. And at some point I went to seminary and I realized, you know, I I can't just demonize the people on the other side. They're sinners and I'm a sinner. And it's not that, that their sins are worse than mine. It's just that they're different. They see the world in a different way. And I want to give some level of credence to the fact that I think they're wrong and I think their policies are bad. And I think that their policies would actually undermine the nation as I believe the nation should be going but that philosophically they think the same thing about me. 
And the only way we together as one nation will move together is for us to be able to recognize each other as actually people who disagree as opposed to people who want to destroy the other side. Now, are there people who want to destroy the other side? Yes, we're seeing them on parade in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in Portland, Oregon. We're seeing them shooting at, at Trump supporters in Los Angeles, California. There are people with coexist bumper stickers on the back of their car who do not want to coexist at all with anyone who disagrees with them. And we should be mindful of that and expose those people and call them out. But I do think if you're a conservative Christian Republican pro-lifer, you should be willing to interact with someone who is a Democrat atheist pro-abortion advocate uh, and recognize that in civil society terms, we do have to tolerate each other's disagreements and fight each other at the ballot box, not in the streets, as some people have decided. And the best way, I think, to fight philosophically the other side of the ballot box is to understand the other side and to understand their positions. And I don't think it's a secret. I I, I do think it's true that conservative pro-lifers in this country are better able to articulate the arguments of the other side than they are of us. Because increasingly in this country, if you, for example, me, living here in Macon, Georgia, I know where most of the people who around me live, how they view the world philosophically. There are people in my neighborhood who have Joe Joe Biden bumper stickers on their car. There are a lot of people in my neighborhood who have Trump stickers on their car. I live in probably the most diverse neighborhood in middle Georgia. And there are black families, Asian families, white families, um, uh, Southeast Asian families, Indian families, uh, families who actually are native of Africa, Hispanic families, all all piled in our neighborhood. There are people with Trump signs. There are people with Biden signs. There are people who still have their Hillary Clinton signs uh, or Hillary Clinton stickers on their car. There are people who still have their Romney stickers on their car. There are people who still have the little black square with the W on it from when George W. Bush peeling off, no less, but still there. And the neighborhood exists because all of those people in their differences of agreement on politics still operate neighborly in a fashion uh, where we all kind of watch out for each other in our neighborhood. And increasingly in this country, uh, those of us on the right live next to people who are of the left. And it is very easy now of someone of the left to never have to interact with someone of the right. You live in an urban corridor. You live, for example, in downtown Macon, uh, where I live, or you live in in, uh, one of the gentrified areas of downtown Atlanta as a progressive activist, you may never come into, uh, you may never come into contact with a Republican in your daily life. With me, it's really hard to avoid someone from the other side. And we see this play out nationally, where people on the right are much more able to honestly and fairly articulate the arguments of the left than on the left they are of the right. On on the right, we're able to honestly articulate a pro-abortion person's position, and on the left, they really do think we're, we're out to control their uterus, um, which isn't true at all. And I think it is incumbent on us to be able to understand the arguments of the other side, even when we disagree. And part of that is, I think, having some of these candidates on and talking to them and letting them make their case, probative, not combative, why do you believe these sorts of things, actually makes a difference in our being able to understand the other side, uh, which is one reason I want to do it. And and so it's open call for those top tier candidates uh, to be able to come on and have those conversations with me and do my job. Now, that was all a very long-winded way to say there is news on the Leffler, Collins, Warnock, Tarver, Lieberman race, and we'll get to all of that when we come back. All right, welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, welcome to the folks down in Brunswick. If uh, you would like to be a part of this program, the phone number is 877-973-7425. 
The Collins-Leffler-Warnock-Lieberman-Tarver race is starting to heat up, particularly on the Republican side. Uh, it is, it's going strong. Um, the Republicans are about to pour in more money here. Uh, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Greg Bluestein, actually has a, a story here that they're about to be going door to door, then they're going to get out on the campaign trail. It's going to to be an actual grassroots campaign out there. Um, so here, here we go. Uh, with some recent public polling numbers showing Leffler with a narrow lead in the November special election, a free-for-all, it's 21 candidates. The internal divisions are sharpening. Uh, Leffler plans a sweep of events across the state this week that feature more of her institutional support from Brian Kemp's circle. Campaign stops will feature Jeff Duncan, John King, Brian Kemp, unable to match Leffler's add-on slot. Collins has tried to reframe this as the authentic conservative, which is why his campaign plans to heavily promote uh, uh, Stacey Abrams' clip. They aim to frame the video of Abrams, reviled among Republicans, as, as evidence Leffler isn't the hard-right politician she portrays herself to be. Now, what is that? Well, uh, there's a high Instagram video. It surfaced of Leffler embracing Stacey Abrams mid-court of an Atlanta dream game weeks before she faced Brian Kemp. It's a clip that Collins' campaign will relentlessly push. I, okay. On the merits of this, I'm just not sure it's wise. Uh, and the reason I'm not sure it's wise is because though Leffler was on the court embracing Abrams at, a, at an event weeks before uh, Abrams faced Brian Kemp, Leffler was actually one of the fundraising chairs for Brian Kemp at the time, and Brian Kemp picked her after that. Uh, and also there are lots of, of uh, statements of Doug Collins praising Stacey Abrams. And so if you do that, uh, you're going to you're going to trot that stuff out. In fact, you're already seeing this. The, the Leffler campaign, Stephen Lawson, uh, the spokesman for the campaign, says no photo or video can erase the fact Doug Collins voted with his good friend Stacey Abrams over 300 times to raise taxes, undermine the Second Amendment, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, Collins and Abrams actually are friends and they do get along. I, you know, I've met Abrams. I, I interviewed her for an hour. She's a very nice person. We disagree on everything, um, but we were friendly towards each other. I just don't know that making Stacey Abrams the boogeyman in this, though, is a smart thing to do. Uh, and it, that may be the best attack. Um, they're certainly trickling this out from the uh, Collins campaign tore about Leffler and Collins. But then there are the videos of Doug Collins also saying that Abrams is a friend. Um, I My suspicion is, if I had to call the race, my suspicion is that Collins and Leffler are going to be in the runoff. I think they're going to leave behind Warnock and Lieberman and Tarver. And I think the two of them themselves will make it to the runoff. And it will be essentially which one loves Stacey Abrams more. We will have to put up with that in January. Uh, honestly, as long as it's Leffler and Collins, I don't care. They're both very nice people. Um, I know I, I know them both. I like them both. Uh, I would not cry if Doug Collins were senator. He would be awesome. Um, but, man, we're going to have to put up with this until January, I'm afraid. That's the downside of this race.
Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here all across the state of Georgia and now Brunswick and the Golden Isles. Welcome down there. Beautiful part of the state. I don't get down there enough. Now I have an excuse to go. Uh, thank you all for, for joining us from uh, down there. 93.7 FM WBQO. Glad to, glad you're with us now uh, as we continue to spread across the state. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of this year program, is 877-973-7425. 877-973-7425. I was talking in the last hour about the candidates who have qualified for the United States Senate uh, special election in Georgia. Let me give you the list. Here are, it's not just Collins, Leffler, Warnock, Tarver, Lieberman. There are 21 people who will be on the ballot. Let me give you the list. Tell you a little bit about each of them. Doug Collins, uh, he is the the U.S. representative for the 9th Congressional District. You all know him. Derek Grayson, he lists himself as a uh, minister. This is how Wikipedia lists him. Minister, network engineer, software developer, perennial candidate, U.S. Navy veteran. Annette Davis-Jackson, she was a 2016 Republican candidate for the state Senate. Uh, Wayne Johnson, uh, former chief operating officer of the Office of Federal Student Aid. Kelly Leffler, the incumbent U.S. Senator. Candace Taylor, student services coordinator for Appling County Board of Education. Those are the uh, declared Republican candidates, uh, according to Wikipedia. Uh, Democratic candidates. We've got Deborah Jackson, former mayor of Lithonia. Uh, Jamesia James, a businesswoman and U.S. Air Force veteran. Tamara Johnson, uh, Shaley, a businesswoman and frequent candidate. Matt Lieberman, businessman, activist, son of Joe Lieberman, former U.S. Senator from Connecticut. He was also the uh, the headmaster of a private school in Atlanta. Uh, Joy Felicia Slade, a physician. Ed Tarver, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of Georgia. Raphael Warnock, uh, the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Richard Dean Winfield, a professor and candidate uh, for the 10th Congressional District. Um, who is this guy? Uh, he's an American philosopher, distinguished research professor of philosophy at the University of Georgia. Okie dokie. Uh, and then, let's see, for the Libertarian Party, we've got Brian Slowinski. He was a candidate for the uh, 10th Congressional District for the Republican nomination in 2014. Uh, and then independent, can- oh, the Green Party, uh, John Fortuin, John Green Fortune, I guess his name is. Uh, okay, and then the independent candidates, Al Bartell, businessman, former Republican uh, candidate and Vietnam Air Force veteran, Alan Buckley, attorney, accountant, libertarian nominee for the U.S. Senate in 2004, 2008, 2006. <laughs> I'm sorry, Alan, I don't mean to laugh, but that's just, that that's funny the way this lists for me. Um, uh, attorney accountant, and then the Libertarian nominee for the U.S. Senate in 2004, 2008, and 2016, and nominee for Lieutenant Governor in 2006. Uh, Michael Todd Green and Rod Mack uh, as a write-in candidate, a member of the city of Hapeville uh, Board of Appeals and candidate in the 2018 gubernatorial election okay and then valencia stovall who is a state representative those are the independent candidates there um okie dokie um i my friends uh am unpersuaded that many of these people will ever get traction and you know that's honestly that's one of the hardest things just just as an aside 
about being in the military or being in the military. Good gracious. I'm looking at one of these guys bios and it slips out. And this is why you have to be careful what you're looking at while you're talking. Being in the media and dealing with candidates and trying to decide on the credibility of candidates of who do you interview? You've got 21 of these candidates and you can't tell me that three quarters of them are, are, are going to do anything. We know the people who are probably going to do stuff. And listen, I, and I get disparagement from people all the time who say, well, you know, if you talked about this person, they would do well. Well, I'm not going to talk about this person until they, I'm not going to make a candidate by giving them attention when they're otherwise not going to do anything. That's just a reality. Uh, there's no reason for me to lend this show or my energies to candidates who otherwise aren't going to be able to do anything. And we know right now the big candidates will be Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler and uh, Ed Tarver and Raphael Warnock and um, and uh, Matt Lieberman. Now, how do we know that? Because they're the ones who have traction in the polls already. Is it a fair way to go about things? Maybe not. But is it the best way to go about things? Absolutely. Yes, it is. Um, that's just, you, you may not like it, but that is the reality of the situation. Um, now, where does everything stand in these? Well, right now in the polling averages, and there haven't been a ton of polls, uh, but you've got uh, Kelly Leffler uh, with an average of, uh, with a polling average bump of 4.3%. She's running ahead in two of the last three polls conducted, but there's been a gap in the polling. Now, how do we break down? Uh, well, we've got Leffler. At 25.3%, this is the polling average at Real Clear Politics. Uh, Kelly Leffler is at 25.3%. Doug Collins is at 21%. Raphael Warnock is at 14.7%. Matt Lieberman is at 12.7%. And Ed Tarver is at 5.7%. I thought Tarver was actually doing better than that. Uh, and then the libertarian Slowinski has a pulse in the Monmouth University poll and no other poll. Um, that that's the breakdown in the last poll, the most recent poll to come out, it was a WXIA TV survey USA poll. Uh, and it was Leffler at 26 Collins at 17 Warnock at 17 Lieberman at 13 and Tarver at three. I'm going by the polling averages here and the polling average is a better way to do it. Uh, if you've listened to this program, you understand that, uh, in the polling averages, um, it is it is far better to use the polling averages than it is to use any one average. Now, let's talk about Purdue and Ossoff for just a minute here in Georgia, because we've got we've got a new station today. You, you've heard me mention it, and and so I I want to real quick review, and I want to review this for everybody who's listening, because it is very notable, uh, and I I think you, you got to understand this. When you look at um, races in the past in Georgia, whether it is um, for president or for governor or for the Senate, uh, when you look at Senate races and the like, historically in Georgia, you have a time in the race where the Democrats have a pretty good lead, and that tends to be in the summer. So, for example... When you go to August of 2016, Hillary Clinton, there were several polls that came out at the beginning of August that gave Hillary Clinton a lead in Georgia. When you go to uh, when you go to the um, 
Nathan Deal, uh, Jason Carter race. There were a number of polls in uh, July and August where Jason Carter had a lead. For example, the WSB TV landmark poll had Jason Carter up seven points in July. Uh, and then in August or September had him up three. And then you get to CNN in uh, October and had Carter up two. Now, most of the polls had deal ahead, but a good number of them, credible polls, actually had him ahead. You, you, when you go to um, the Romney-Obama race in 2012, you actually had, there were some times where Romney was, for example, uh, only had a three-point lead. You go to the Nathan Deal-Roy uh, Barnes race in 2000, when was that, in, in 2006? Uh, and you have a, yeah, 2000, yeah, six, seven, eight, nine. No, no, no. That would 2010. I don't know. Anyway, when you go to that race, you had a, a time where Roy Barnes was ahead and you see this repeatedly in Georgia in 2018, there was a time during the July, August, September period where Stacey Abrams regularly led Brian Kemp in polling in 2016, there was a time in the late summer, early fall, where Hillary Clinton was ahead of Donald Trump briefly. In 2014, there was a time where Michelle Nunn led David Perdue, and there was a time where um, there was a time where Jason Carter led Nathan Deal. And this happens consistently in Georgia in the late summer, early fall. Part of it has to do with Republican voters typically don't answer phone calls from people that they don't recognize on their phones. It has to do with the fact that during the late summer, early fall, Republicans tend to be on vacation more so than Democrats. So they have to try harder to fill that pool of people who respond as Republicans. And oftentimes they get more moderate people who aren't necessarily Republicans, but say they are. And the polling shows in Georgia reliably in 2006, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, and 18 that in the late summer, early fall, the Democrat tends to have a slight edge on the Republican in Georgia. And then the world reverts. This is why it's a problem for John Ossoff in Georgia. Let me give you all of the polling that we have thus far from June, Fox News, Purdue up three. From uh, OAN Gravis in uh, beginning of July, Purdue up five. From Monmouth University at the end of July, Purdue up seven. From CBS News YouGov at the end of July, Purdue up two. From WXIA Survey USA, Purdue up three at the beginning of August. Uh, Right now, David Purdue, the polling average has him up four. That's notable because, again, typically at this time of year, the Democrats lead the Republicans in the polling in Georgia and John Ossoff does not. Now, that doesn't mean John Ossoff can't win, but it does mean that typically this is where the Democrats do the best in polling and then they subside. If prior patterns continue in Georgia, then that means that John Ossoff is at his peak and will decline from here on out. There will be a a post-Labor Day bump into early October and then he'll, he'll settle again. The reality is that the suburbs in Georgia are heavily in play. The Democrats and Republicans both know this. And in 2018, one of the reasons Stacey Abrams did as well as she did is Republicans in Georgia ceded the suburban ground game to the National Party, and the National Party didn't deliver. This year, the Trump campaign is in charge of that ground game, and the Trump campaign intends to boost their numbers in the suburbs. 
And so people like Karen Handel and Rich McCormick, who are running the 6th and 7th Congressional District, should get some benefit from it. And in fact, I'm told reliably, actually are seeing some benefit from the door-to-door efforts of the Trump campaign in the suburbs in Georgia. That being said, Stacey Abrams has a massive operation in Georgia. It has been ongoing for some time, and it is very well funded by outside groups. And she intends to do a ground game in conjunction with student activists from historically black colleges and universities, the HBCUs, which she relied on in 2018. Now, all of that being said, there's something for Democrats in Georgia that they mutter about quietly. It is presumed that if Joe Biden gets elected in 2020, that that will be game over for Stacey Abrams in 2022. Historically, the party out of power does well in the non-presidential years. The reason it became very close between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams was because Donald Trump was the incumbent in the White House. So if Joe Biden is the president of the United States come 2022, Stacey Abrams will have a harder time. That's just the way it is. So there are some Democrats in the state who already grumble. Will the Stacey Abrams machine actually turn out to help Joe Biden? She's not his vice presidential pick. And she knows if he wins, it pretty much scuttles her chance to beat Brian Kemp in 2022. And there are Democrats behind the scenes now already mumbling, muttering, complaining that maybe the ground game won't be there for the Democrats in Georgia. In fact, you get a sense of this from the national Democrats spending in Georgia is not they've reserved time, but they're not actually spending the money and putting up the ads in Georgia. They've only just now begun to invest in the state. And that suggests to a lot of people, the Democrats really, despite their public pronunciations, public pronouncements, they're really not viewing Georgia as a state in play this year. And frankly, given the polling trends in the state, they probably shouldn't. I have said pretty consistently that given the demographic trend lines in Georgia, if demography is destiny, The Democrats aren't on track to pick up the state until 2022 or 2024 at the earliest. Not now. A lot of Republicans didn't show up in 2018, and they'll be there in 2020. Democrats pretty much maxed out their turnout in 2018 and still didn't do it. A lot of Republicans didn't turn out. Republicans treated it as an off-year election. They'll turn out this November. That'll give the Republicans a little bit of an edge in Georgia. It's not impossible for the Democrats to win, but it is improbable that they'll be able to do it this year. And nationally, the Democrats recognize that, and they're not spending the money here they've claimed they were going to spend. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number is 877-97-ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, 877-973-7425. You know, I got all sorts of audio, and then I didn't play it, and now I want to play it. And I want to focus on one story that I don't think is getting enough attention. A flight has landed in Abu Dhabi, uh, the capital of the United Arab Emirates. Uh, It is uh, a flight from Tel Aviv in Israel. And that's a really big deal. Here's Benjamin Netanyahu. Yet we could not seal this historic peace with the Emirates and with others that are in line without the tremendous support of our great and loyal friends from the United States of America. Jared, from the start, you said that more countries would make peace with Israel. You were uh, dismissed, sometimes ridiculed, scoffed at. Well, I'm glad I'll be charitable. I'm glad that those critics have been proven wrong, dead wrong. Uh, It's true that some countries still hold out, making 
the perfunctory statements in support of Palestinian demands, but we know that reality has changed because we have changed it. We are changing it as we speak. Uh, and I want to thank you for everything that you are doing in this regard. The president really hasn't gotten a lot of credit for the uh, Israel-UAE peace deal. In fact, uh, CNN did a 10-minute segment uh, within days of the story breaking and never mentioned that the president is the one who negotiated this. Jared Kushner helped negotiate it, and there's been a lot of ridicule in the press because of that. And I don't think we can underestimate the fact that this president actually did negotiate a peace deal in the Middle East and got the Israel and the United Arab Emirates to publicly acknowledge what has privately been the case for some time, uh, that they are now, in, in to some degree, working together. And it has brought on Bahrain, and it has brought on Oman as well. Now, the, I, I, I need to put some perspective on this, and I mentioned this before. I grew up in Dubai. Uh, grew up in the Middle East, grew up in Dubai. And when I was growing up in the 1980s in Dubai, uh, any reference to Israel was redacted. Uh, Israel did not exist in our textbooks. Uh, pages were torn out or pages had black ink uh, covering them uh, to the extent that there were maps of uh, the eastern part of the Mediterranean. It either said Palestine or it was blacked out. You didn't know what was south of Lebanon. All of that goes away. When I was a kid, you couldn't travel from Dubai to Israel in any way, shape, or form. If Israel, if the stamp for Israel was in your passport, you couldn't get in to the United Arab Emirates. You weren't allowed to, and that was the way it is in all uh, Middle Eastern countries. Uh, Israel, for all intents and purposes, didn't exist. You couldn't make a phone call from Dubai to Tel Aviv. It would not work. Now, not only can you make those phone calls, but you can fly between those countries. That is a really big deal. Oman and Bahrain are coming online as well, uh, supporting Israel. Today, a flight landed for the first time from Israel to the United Arab Emirates. That has never happened before. It is a big deal, and it is this administration that negotiated it. I bring this up because when we come back, we need to go back to the issue of violence on the streets. Because the media does not want to give any credit to the president for a Middle Eastern peace deal that actually got an Arab country and the Jewish state cooperating with each other publicly. But when they talk about violence in the streets, it is routine and regular that you hear people blaming the president for the violence, which is unacceptable. Here is the mayor of Portland, Oregon. President Trump, for four years... We've had to live with you and your racist attacks on black people. We learned early about your sexist attitudes towards women. We've had to endure clips of you mocking a disabled man. We've had to listen to your anti-democratic attacks on journalists. We've read your tweets slamming private citizens to the point of receiving death threats. And we've listened to your attacks on immigrants. We've listened to you label Mexicans rapists. We've heard you say that John McCain wasn't a hero because he was a prisoner of war. And now you're attacking Democratic mayors and the very institutions of democracy that have served this nation well since its founding. Do you seriously wonder, Mr. President, why this is the first time in decades that America has seen this level of violence? It's you who have created the hate and the division. Really? It, it, it's the president who's created the hate and the division. You, you know, 
it was the Obama administration that told people to get in their neighbors' faces and argue. It was Obama who told his supporters to take guns to knife fights. It was Obama who told Hispanic voters Republicans were the enemy. Uh, the media has always given Barack Obama and the Democrats a pass on this, and it's not the president of the United States and his supporters burning down Portland, Oregon right now. It's not. Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. Uh, I, I keep getting the, this question. Uh, yes, I know. I, I, I find it hilarious trolling. Someone has redirected the website, Antifa.com. They've redirected it to Joe Biden's campaign website. No, the Biden campaign is not responsible for it. No, they did not do it. Someone did it. I, I, I can buy a, I can buy a, um, website, uh, com and redirect it to Donald Trump, uh, his campaign. And, and I'm sure people would do a news story on it. What's notable is they had media hadn't done one on this. Uh, but the, the Biden campaign has nothing to do with this. Any, anyone can do this. It's, it's like grade a trolling. Uh, and, and that's, what's going on. I want to go full circle to the beginning of this program. And, and I need you to bear with me here for a moment. E- I was on CNN uh, from the end of 2009 uh, until 2000, January 2013, when I moved to Fox. In January of 2011, I was at um, Kiowa Island. I'd never been to Kiowa before at a at a conference called Awakenings. It was there where I and, and several other people got in a room and tried to convince Mike Pence he should run for president in 2000, for 2012. He chose to run for governor instead. Uh, Awakenings is a, a conservative, Christian conservative conference. It's actually the only time I've ever been to Sea Island. Uh, the year before, they had their conference at Sea Island, and then they had to move it to Kiowa for some reason that year. And I think they've gone back to Sea Island. I need to get invited because I can't afford Sea Island, but they paid for me to come to Sea Island and to Kiowa to, to speak. Um, and I, uh, wonderful people, wonderful, good Christian people. But while I was there, uh, news broke that, uh, there had been a shooting in Arizona that Gabriel Giffords had been shot. A federal judge was killed and the media immediately leapt to the conclusion that it was a right-wing terrorist. In fact, the media very quickly move to it was right-wing rhetoric that caused the shooting. I remember being on television with uh, a Democratic pollster and John King from CNN and John King somewhat conciliatory on we've always used the language of war for politics and maybe it's time to move on. And the immediate culprit, according to the media, was Sarah Palin, who had sent out a mail piece that had targets on different congressional districts around the nation, one of which was Gabrielle Giffords. And the media very quickly pinned Sarah Palin on this, even though she had nothing to do with it. They wanted to blame her. The New York Times still has blamed Sarah Palin, even though it's been thoroughly debunked. Turns out that Jared Lochner, the shooter, was mentally ill. uh, And to the extent that he had ever voiced any interest in politics, it was of the left. But it really wasn't political. He was just nuts. It had nothing to do with their politics. And the media, though, rushed to blame conservatives. In fact, in 2009 and early 2010, there were a series of town hall events in the run-up to Obamacare, all of which were peaceful. And yet at the time, members of the media 
blamed the right and said the right was intimidating people. Chris, uh, what's his name? Hayes on MSNBC at the time. He did. I don't think he had a show, but he was a regular commentator and went on uh, really upset at the tone of the right, the, the violent tone of the right. It, it, there wasn't violence, but it was a violent tone and it was intimidating and it was scary. And, and the media wanted you to be fearful of conservative Tea Party activists waving American flags uh, and opposing Obamacare. There was no violence. Uh, Mary Catherine Hamm, now at CNN at the time she was writing at townhall.com, actually documented during the uh, recess town halls, August, September of 2009, documented six arrests. Five of the six arrests were union activists uh, who beat up Tea Party activists. And yet the media blamed the Tea Party. They were racist. They were intimidating. They were thugs. They were goons. They were bad. And now fast forward to 2020, where American cities literally are being set on fire by left-wing activists, by progressive activists. They are not Joe Biden supporters, to be fair. They are Bernie Sanders or to the left. To the extent they vote, they will vote for Joe Biden to stop Donald Trump, but they don't really like Joe Biden. Joe Biden has nothing to lose with denouncing these individuals because they're not his voters to begin with. They're further to the left than even him. And yet Joe Biden will only denounce the violence. He won't denounce the people. If Donald Trump were to do that, uh, Donald Trump would be excoriated by the media. And that's not a hypothetical because in Charlottesville, Virginia, in the aftermath of that uh, Unite the Right rally of white supremacists where Antifa showed up and someone got killed by a white supremacist, Donald Trump denounced the violence on both sides and the media condemned him for not specifically denouncing the white supremacists, contrary to how they're treating Joe Biden. In fact, the media and Democrats have peddled the belief that Donald Trump said there were good people on both sides. And in fact, that's not what Donald Trump said. And I frankly was under the belief that that is what Donald Trump said because so many people in the media reported it. And it turns out that's not true. If you actually, and, and kudos to Jake Tapper of CNN for being the one to debunk this. It was Jake Tapper at CNN who debunked it, who played the video. The president denounced actually the white supremacist that the media said he did not denounce and said beyond the white supremacist, there were people there on both sides, good people on both sides, who were protesting in their own way, separate from what the white supremacists were doing. And there were good people on both sides, on the left and the right. Uh, but the media would have you believe that he was supporting the white supremacists by calling them good people. He did not do that. Jake Tapper of CNN debunked this. And yet it continues on in the media as a myth. Well, here comes Joe Biden denouncing violence, uh, the, the violence and the riots, but he won't actually denounce Antifa. He won't denounce the actual violent people, just the violence in generic terms. And the media is willing to give him a pass in the way they never would the right. This is a clear double standard by the media in America today. It is a clear double standard in how they attack the uh, Republicans and attack individuals and attack whole blankets of conservative supporters during the Tea Party days, and they won't do it now. And the Democratic politicians do it as well. Let me play this clip by Amy Klobuchar. Listen to this very carefully. Well, my first reaction is, and I have long condemned looting, violence, threats. That's not peaceful protest. And I don't care who's engaging in it, you condemn it. And of course, Joe Biden has clearly condemned it. But let's step back. 
this isn't just happening in one place. It's happening all over the country. It is happening under Donald Trump's watch. What is going on? We have innocent people uh, like George Floyd uh, shot by police. Uh, we have what happened in Kenosha. And then we have a president that literally stands on the people's lawn in violation of the Hatch Act, stands on the lawn with a bunch of pageantry and a bunch of fancy clothes with arias playing from the balcony and says, oh, do you want to be more safe? We are not safe in Donald Trump's America. Now, actually, you are safe in Donald Trump's America. It's in Democratic-run cities where you're not safe. There may be a thousand violent protesters around this country, and they're all in deeply progressive cities protesting. They're not protesting in Macon, Georgia. They're not even protesting in Atlanta, where the governor very wisely put the National Guard on alert uh, before the, the Antifa could move in. They're not protesting in Birmingham, Alabama. They're not protesting in... Uh, they're not protesting in Sacramento, California. They're not protesting in Dallas, Texas. They're protesting in deeply progressive enclaves. But notice what Amy Klobuchar does. She does what the media does. She takes it back. It's all Donald Trump and Donald Trump's rhetoric. Let the record show. In 2008, candidate Barack Obama told his supporters they needed to start taking guns to knife fights. The media said nothing. Let the record show Donald, it was Barack Obama who actually committed an office led by Linda Douglas, formerly of ABC News, where you could forward emails that your neighbors and others sent that supposedly lied about Obamacare. Turn in your neighbors for lying about Obamacare and they would set the record straight. Let the record show it was Barack Obama who encouraged people, his supporters, to get in their neighbor's face and argue. That's actually the words Barack Obama said, get in your neighbor's face and argue. And the media gave him a pass. Let the record also show it was Barack Obama who told Hispanic voters the Republicans were their enemy. And let the record show it was Joe Biden, then vice president of the United States, who told black voters Republicans wanted to put them back in chains. And the media said nothing. The media said nothing. And now it is left-wing agitators who are burning down American cities. And who does the media blame? Donald Trump. It is left-wing agitators shooting at Trump supporters. And who does the media blame? Donald Trump. I want to play you two clips. This is from Dana Bash on CNN, who I know I, and I like and I deeply respect, but I need you to listen to this. This is Adam Schiff talking. Do you have any reason to believe that Russia is trying to fuel some of the civil unrest in these cities via social media or other methods? Uh, in terms of what we can expect from the Russians or what the Russians are doing, the Russians four years ago, Dana, exploited Black Lives Matter. They set up their own false flags online uh, to try to divide people along racial lines. Are they doing uh, and it we now? Have to, uh, uh, they are, once again, uh, doing their best uh, in social media, in their overt media, and other means to grow these divisions again. And I think that uh, most pernicious, we, gotta, we have to worry about uh, their aggravating these tensions in our cities. We also have to worry about the Russians pushing out the president's false narratives about voting by mail. Um, but finally, on the protest, Anna, I, I want to underscore something that you were asking Senator Johnson about, and that is the president is willfully fanning the flames of this violence. Uh, as his own advisor, Kellyanne Conway, said last week, they believe the violence is helpful to them. 
that was him speaking for a minute and five seconds. Now listen to Dana Bash talking to Ron Johnson about the Russia situation. It's, 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 it's how the media and how Democrats but, no, have, have no, taken that but, but and, and, and basically done media. Vladimir Putin's work for This is about the Constitution and the, and the oversight responsibility that people like you in Congress have. Shouldn't you have the opportunity to question people who are we, uh, working on we, securing we, we, the elections which are happening now? We, we do and we will. And we all we all know what Putin is doing. We, you know, China wants to Biden to be the next president. We understand that. But, there, you know, it's very difficult to change votes. It's very difficult to actually affect the poll numbers. What you can do is de destabilize our politics. And, you, and that and is you, exactly what Russia has succeeded in doing be because of what Adam Schiff, Democrats, and the news media believe, have done as a result. Do you believe and do you um, agree with the notion that Russia, as we speak, is trying to destabilize this election? Yeah, they always have, they always will. Yes, yes. You know, again, I, so I held hearings on this a couple years before the 2000. That was the same amount of time Ron Johnson speaking. How many more times he was he was questioned? Notice the fallback here as well. Is is Russia, Russia, Russia? It, it's it's not the activists and the agitators who are responsible. And you know that that's actually the thing that makes me mad about all of this. Is all the culpability always lies with the right in the media? When it was the Tea Party activists who were peaceful, they were considered violent. When a nut job shot Gabby Giffords, it was immediately Sarah Palin and the right who were blamed. Here, you have actual progressive activists and Antifa supporters burning down businesses in American cities and shooting people. And it's Donald Trump's rhetoric, or it's the Russians. It's not the actual agitators. When Joe Biden comes out and condemns the violence, he condemns the violence, not those people committing the violence. He does not name them. When Ted Wheeler, the mayor of Portland, Oregon, comes out, he says it's Donald Trump who's exacerbating the tensions. How? Donald Trump can't exacerbate the tensions. Why is it that Barack Obama can come out and tell people to get in their neighbors' faces and uh, that, that Republicans are the enemies and you don't see Tea Party activists burning down neighborhoods in America? But you see left-wing activists burn down streets in America, and it's the right's fault. It's Donald Trump's fault. That is called a double standard. That is hypocrisy in the media. They refuse to hold the left to the same standards they've always held the right. You will recall several years ago, a man flew a plane, tried to fly a plane into the IRS building in Texas as a protest, and he was immediately presumed to be a right-wing uh, activist. It turned out that he was a Marxist activist. You'll recall several years ago, there was a shooting outside the Pentagon at the bus stop. He was The person was immediately presumed to be a right-wing activist. Turned out he was a left-wing activist, and, and the media w w just completely went away. Remember the Discovery Channel, the, the guy took hostages at Discovery Channel? It was immediately presumed by major blue check marks on social media that this must be a right-wing person who did this. It turns out it was a left-wing anarchist who believed Al Gore wasn't doing enough to stop global warming and the Discovery Channel was covering cor for corporate America. The story was dropped from the headlines time and again. James Hodgkinson, when it turns out James Hodgkinson was a Bernie Sanders supporter, the media dropped the story. Had he been on the right, it would have been a multi-week phenomenon of investigating who this guy was. And now you've got Democratic senators like Chris Murphy from Connecticut who are inflaming the next generation of James Hodgkinson's and notice the media isn't saying anything. Let me read for you the tweet from Chris Murphy. This is a tweet from a senator, a United States senator. 
Can we take the gloves off and tell the truth? Trump is deliberately killing people. He holds rallies where people get infected. On Thursday, no social distancing or masks, sending a clear message the CDC should be ignored. His plan is to kill people. Let's just say it. If a Republican said that, you would be in a multi-day festival of inquiry from the media, and instead, they're giving this guy a pass in the same way they gave Nancy Pelosi a pass the other day for calling Republicans the enemy, for calling Republicans the enemy of the people. They constantly give Democrats passes on rhetoric they would never give Republicans passes for. They constantly highlight uh, right-wing protesters as violent and actually ignore the actual violence from left-wing protesters. There is a double standard here, and that in and of itself helps perpetuate and fuel what's happening in the country. And the fact that the media won't own up to it and turns a blind eye to it and defends themselves is another reason left-wing agitators can burn down America and get a pass without anybody paying attention to it unless people like Donald Trump Trump speak up and point out what's happening, and then suddenly it's his fault for daring to point out who's doing it. This hour of the program is brought to you by True Precision. Uh, They made my concealed carry gun. Well, they didn't make it. I've got a Glock 43X, but they upgraded the heck out of it, uh, and they can do the same for you. If you're interested in upgrading, modifying your handgun, you need to go to true-precision.com. Uh, They're a Georgia-based company. Uh, They can help you anywhere nationwide, though. Uh, And what you do is you go to true-precision.com, and they have slides and barrels. Uh, You can upgrade triggers. Uh, They they do Glock, S&P, and and, uh, a few others. Um, Let's see. True, I'll give you the list. True-precision.com. They do all the the fancy ones, and they keep adding others. I'm I'm sorry, I said S&P, SIG, M&P. Glock, SIG, M&P, those are the big ones that they do for barrels. You can get slides for the Glock and the SIG. You can get side plate, titanium side plates. You can get their Axiom triggers. They do just gorgeous work. And I do mean gorgeous. Um, you take a gun out that they have modified for you, and you get compliments, and you get questions. Where did you get this? Happens with me every time I go to the gun range. Uh, like with Dynamic Money, uh, True Precision is actually, I was a customer of theirs before they were an advertiser, and I love them. Did not hesitate when they reached out and said they wanted to advertise on the show. It's like, I can sell your products because I love my uh, Glock 43X that I've worked with them to build. Now, if you want to, here's what you do. You go to true-precision.com. Uh, get on their website, true-precision.com. You pick the barrel, pick the slide, pick the slide plate, the side pl- the slide plate, if I can talk. I'm half Swedish, half Cajun. Language is a problem. Uh, it, pick one of their triggers. You upgrade your gun. You can order their parts online. When you check out, if you put Eric in at checkout, you get 10% off. E-R-I-C-K. Remember the C and the K, best of both worlds. Uh, you do that, and man, I, so I've got a my 43X that I got from, I've got a camo slide, and uh, the barrel is is modified. The thing is just awesome. I love it. Uh, deadly accurate. And, you know, the last thing the bad guy sees before you pull the trigger is, hmm, that's a pretty cool-looking gun. <laughs> Home protection. My great concealed carry, true-precision.com. Thanks to them for sponsoring uh, the program. You know, so I got to wonder, is there a silver lining in everything that's been going on with COVID-19? I know so many people who are pulling their kids completely out of school and are homeschooling their kids now, or they're sending their kids to a a private school or a, a collaborative effort of homeschool parents. And I, you know, part of me just thinks that pulling your kids out of the indoctrination programs of so many public schools nationwide is actually a good thing. 
uh, and long-term will benefit the success of this country as parents are taking the education of their children into their own hands, those who can. It's something we got to work on, though, for those who can't. How do we improve those systems? Food for thought uh, that we're going to have to delve into here later on the program. We are out of time today. I will talk to all of you guys tomorrow. Have a great rest of the day.